Welcome to the SciFeed Podcast, I'm your host Jack, and in each episode I'll be talking to a different scientist about the research that they've done and the work that they know best. Today I'm joined by Natalia Jagielska, a PhD student who studies paleontology, specifically pterosaurs, at the University of Edinburgh. Could you tell us a little bit about how you decided to study pterosaurs particularly? Okay, with some like PhD projects, you kind of get very, very picky. So I was very lucky to get a project on pterosaurs. Previously, I didn't really look at pterosaurs that much, just because they have this reputation of not being very friendly to work with. Pterosaurs are very fragile, they're flying annuals, so the bones are pneumatized, meaning they're basically hollow tubes. So a bit like bird bones. It's exactly the same, or bad bones. They just, they have to be flying, so they have to be light. And to do it, you just lose mass by making your bones hollow or at least sponge-like in some uh, cases. Uh, and because of that, they don't really preserve for, for millions of years. Like, hundreds of millions of years and one millimeter of tissue doesn't really hold that long. That's why pterosaur preservation is very, very sparse, and we know very little about them. They're spread across all over the world, from Triassic to Cretaceous, so entire Mesozoic area of reptiles. But there's not very much to go on to. Up until now, I'm currently describing a new specimen from Scotland, which I cannot talk a lot about because it's under embargo. It's very big and exciting. Uh, and I got a PhD and I suddenly started being interested in pterosaurs because they're really fascinating creatures. And I joined Panthology for the same reason like most people after watching Jurassic Park. <laughs> Actually, Jurassic Park 3, not the original one. The bad one. I enjoyed the bad one. I really liked the raptors in it. Yeah, so a little bit inspired and then chosen because it's hard to work with these fragile specimens of pterosaurs. Yeah, it's definitely, because there's a lot of them, we have to do a lot of interpretation and lots of line drawing, which I'm currently drawing, uh, doing. Uh, I'm working on palagentic trees, so connecting relationships between different pterosaurs, because we have a lot of fossils from different time periods and different areas, and we have no idea how they connect to each other on family levels. Uh, so I'm currently working on a brand new tree, looking at characters and how they change through time. But it's very, very hard just because we have a bit of school from China, from Middle Jurassic, and then from Skeleton from Lower Jurassic, from Germany. And how do they connect? Can they connect? <laughs> yeah, currently I'm answering that question, which is very interesting. It's very interpretative and open to imp- interpretation. I'm doing it, but it's a hefty work, I agree. Yeah, it sounds like it would be hard work to make yourself certain about what you found. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, just because the record is so incomplete and the preservation is very sparse, you don't usually get bones preserved in three dimensions, just flattened impressions of them. And that also adds to the risk of misinterpretation of features uh, and limits what we can actually say about the bones. How is it you actually go about figuring out the evolutionary relationship do you use a lot of computer simulations, or is it mostly by hand? Uh, it's usually both. Uh, it's uh, something like Paljani is quite old, so it's basically you look at anatomy and small features like heads of the humerus or delta protoa crest, uh, angles between certain bones in the skull, uh, and see how they collate throughout time. Sometimes you have something called modular evolution, in which you can see different specimens representing gradual evolution from one state to another. But very rarely happens in real life. Evolution just sort of splits enough awkward angles, it sort of goes back. Sometimes it sort of replicates itself, and it's called convergent evolution. So you have two different trees evolving very similar traits. So you kind of have to figure out which is which. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's very, very hard because we don't, nothing like this exists now. So we have no idea 
if something is related by just convergent evolution of similar traits evolving independently of each other. Same way, like you have jaguars and leopards, which look very, very similar, but they're different. But without genetic information, we can only go on through uh, anatomy. And also that's complicated by things like ontogeny, so growth, and gender. Because you have gender and interspecies uh, variation, which is very hard to account for, especially when you have very low sample sizes. When you have a sample that you don't know if it's male or female, is that quite challenging then to deal with? Yeah, yes, because sometimes you have different things like uh, male specific, you have things called gender dimorphism, so slight differences in anatomy dictated by the gender. Uh, and we have no idea how genders of turtles look like. We have only one confirmed female, and that's a Darwin of turtles from China, with her eggs still in the oviduct being preserved. So we definitely know that's a female. And we have very small specimen, which is slightly more robust and has a big head crest. So we now know females didn't have head crests, at least for Darwin opters. And now can we expand this knowledge to other specimens? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure to put on only one female sample from millions of years. Actually, how old are our pterosaurs? Okay, so first pterosaurs that we have on record dating to Norian, which is in Triassic. So that's around 200 million years old. Most of specimens I'm currently studying are Jurassic, so it's 150 million years old. And the last one, uh, Asdarkid, was from 65 million years old. So that's the time period in which the big asteroid hit planet and all the big terrestrial reptiles went extinct. Did any of the pterosaurs survive the asteroid hit? Uh, no, sadly not. Uh, actually, by Cretaceous, most of the species and subspecies uh, mysteriously disappeared. We had this weird bottleneck in which just certain things like Asdarkids, which are very big and weird pterosaurs, just survived for this last leg of like Cretaceous before they all went extinct. They're one of the big animals that definitely disappeared after KT, which is something we can't say to most things that they died during KT extinction. Like dinosaurs actually survived, most of them. The small, heavy ones, and that's why we have birds currently. So it's not as cataclysmic as media make out, but for pterosaurs it was. Oh, so it's actually true that modern birds come from dinosaurs then? Yes, the idea was circulating around actually when pterosaurs came around. When they discovered pterosaurs, they thought they were like missing between birds and the reptiles. He was on the close line, but pterosaurs actually have nothing in common with birds, save from they were able to fly. But Archaeopteryx, the famous dinosaur from late Jurassic, uh, was discovered and described in the 19th century. And around then, it was very controversial because it showed this gradual change from bulky dinosaurs to very gracile birds because it has characters of both modern birds, like feathers, and also reptiles, so it has long tail and teeth. And it was very controversial because that was around publication uh, on the origin of species by Darwin. So church got involved, politics got involved, so it was very, very messy. Because then you have this amazing specimen which is currently in uh, both London Museum and Berlin Museum, Natural History Museum. It's absolutely amazing, lovely fossil to look at, uh, which is very distinctively reptilio birdish. It's like trademark transitional fossil. But the uh, idea of dinosaurs definitely being related to birds came around the 1990s, when we discovered a lot of feathered dinosaurs from China, especially province Liaoning uh, and Geobiota. We have hundreds of fossils of birds or dinosaurs fully covered in feathers from very uh, from small dinosaurus rex uh, called Uteranus to actually small birds with uh, that's only difference is that they have some claws on the wings 
which some modern birds still do. When you look at things like Hoatzin, they still have claws on their wings. It's like small ancestral trait. And yeah, by Cretaceous, or even from Middle Jurassic, where certain a lot of small dinosaurs were fully covered in fluffy feathers. Do feathers fossilize easily? Yes, yeah. Fossils are mainly composed of keratin, so it's the same element that you have in your fingernails and in your hair. Uh, and it's very hard to decompose. So when you have good preservation conditions, like fast sedimentation and anoxia or no oxygen, those feathers usually preserve, along with sometimes soft tissues, so like pads on the legs, or in case of pterosaurs, actually wing, mem wing membranes. Also, pterosaurs had feathers, or pycnal fibrils. It's hard to picture a, a feathery dinosaur. Feathery fuzz. So it's similar to feathers, but we are not sure if it's feathers. It might be convergent evolution, so very similar traits evolved independently, or part of the same lineage. So they could have evolved completely differently, but produced a very similar feather thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite a hot topic, right? I mean, coming to plantology. If we accept that the pterosaur fuzz is the same as dinosaur fuzz, that means the feathers evolved even before dinosaurs were around. Which is interesting idea. That means we have a lot of feathery lizards foods. Are modern lizards with their scales then like really different from their ancestors? I mean, they're covered in also keratin. Scales are made of the same material as feathers. It's not a big conclusion that, you know, they might just be slightly more fluffy. <laughs> and when you just look at anything from Geobiota, you can even see patterns of coloration on some of the feathers. We know some dinosaurs had stripes, some had dots. Sorry, just when you're saying Geobiota, what does that mean? Oh, it's Geo, uh, it's Biota, especially coming from China. It's a very specific deposit which is famous for its uh, preservation of both 3D and 2D fossils, which retain uh, soft tissues like feathers. And, but also we have feather preservation uh, occurring in formations from Brazil and from Germany. So there's lots of small uh, locations in which you have pres very good preservation, which allows preservation of skin and uh, feathers. But it's only limited to very certain locations, which had possibly anoxic lakes or seas so that means we do not the sea didn't have any oxygen and had quite fast sedimentation rates so animal died and was quickly covered by sand or mud without any bacterial action allowing everything to be preserved is lack of oxygen then just the most important thing yeah 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 is the pterosaur sample from scotland that you're studying was it preserved in a similar place to that something like this those areas of extensional preservation are called langestate and they're pretty well known because they yield a lot of fossils, which are amazing. But sadly, we don't have any soft tissue preservation language data in the United Kingdom. We have all the fossils from Jurassic, but sadly, we didn't have any conditions to allow this. So most of our fossils are disarticulated, so they're not connected to each other, and preserved in 3D. Because during Jurassic, Britain was split into small islands with lots of lakes and sea between them. And that sea is usually preserved. That's why you have so many swimming reptiles like Ichthyosauruses being discovered. Especially around regions uh, like Lyme Ridges uh, in Dorset, the Jurassic Coast, which is very fossiliferous, and areas like, like Yorkshire and Isle of Skye, which I'm currently studying. Lots of places to visit to find some fossils then, for anyone listening who's interested. Definitely. I advise to go to any of them because you have pretty high chances of finding something like an ammonite or belemite one of the small invertebrate critters. It's very, very likely they're among the ground. 
the shrouds are made of calcium. Calcium doesn't really alter that much with time, so they are preserved as they were. Or sometimes replaced with pyrite, so they're very, very shiny and nice. If chemicals like pyrite get into samples that you're working on, does that make it quite challenging to work with then? It definitely is because uh, in UK many things are preserved with, like I said, pyrite, and pyrite is an iron oxide. So it's metal that reacts with oxygen. And if you don't put uh, that iron grows within the fossils, sometimes actually deforming them, and when it's exposed to oxygen, it roasts and destroys the fossil itself. So it has to be put into conditions which actually actively remove oxygen, so the fossil doesn't disintegrate with time. So you kind of have to remove the rust before it gets worse? Yeah, yeah, in a way. I'll just stop it from rusting altogether. Luckily, the mine specimen doesn't have that much rust. I have not checked its geochemistry yet. It has lots of cubic pyrite crystals around it, which is lovely. It's called fool's gold, actually, because it looks like gold, but it's not gold. Many people actually get very, very excited. Yeah, I think I would be if I thought I'd found a gold fossil. It sounds like you've got a lot of technical knowledge on, I guess, the chemistry side. Did you always intend to go into the paleontology field, or did you start off in something like chemistry? Oh, so when coming to studying of vertebrates are from Mesozoic, I, I always wanted to do it before I went even to college. I wanted either to go into part of English literature or paleontology. And I thought you had to go to, for, to get to paleontology, you had to go to zoology, which you can do. I know a lot of people that study actually biology or epidemiology and go into paleontology because it's a very versatile field. But most easiest path is going through geology because suddenly most of the fossils are now rocks and studying rocks helps. And also, uh, I really like geology. It's a very versatile field in which you have to cover physics, chemistry, and biology separately and integrate it into knowledge of earth processes. So I started doing that, doing just basic geology in my first three years and then specializing into paleontology and geochemistry in my master's year at University of Manchester, in which I looked at uh, evolution of small birds from Eocene and the chemical composition of the bone surrounding matrix, so the sand that surrounds it, using x-rays and fluorescence, so seeing actually chemical maps of the fossils to see if we have any original chemistry of the bone. So in my specimen that wasn't the case, there's a lot of oxidation, so fluids came later and just washed things nucleated manganese and other unfriendly metals, which happens a lot. I mean, it's millions of years, so things will happen. With such old samples, is it hard to actually study them without causing damage? I mean, it depends on technique you use. You can use something like CT scanning, which doesn't break any sample at all. There's a technique I used for masters was called sequential rapid scanning X-ray fluorescence. It's non-destructive, uh, which is great because the only good big chemical analysis that can be done with a description of the sample of things like FTIR. Actually, you have to burn the sample down to get this chemistry. But problem signal rapid scanning has to It's a big tube that sort of has electrons spinning to almost uh, light speed speeds, clashing with the sample to get them. Not expensive, but it, it takes a long time to get them to certain locations, actually. And in Europe, you have one in Oxford, uh, one in uh, Grenoble in France, and my specimen studied in Stanford. So it's a very handy technique, which is not the handiest technique, because, uh, which usually has a lot of waiting time. Not only fossils are studied using that technique, also like commercial chemical companies use it and astronomists. It's quite busy. Yeah, everyone just needs to use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I wanted to ask you a bit more about the big extinction event that we were talking about earlier and why some dinosaurs survived it, but pterosaurs didn't survive it. Yeah, I mean, all of dinosaurs went extinct around the asteroid impact, but the small ones that could easily adapt and travel, like birds, could handle it pretty well. And they had very, because they had developing beaks and things like that, they could eat seeds and other things that big animals couldn't. So when you have environmental stress, being small, migratorial, and covered in food help. Big, hulking dinosaurs we know sadly went extinct because there was not enough food, while the smaller ones, including small mammals from which we evolved, sort of took this as an opportunity to take up niches. Which is a lovely story of just, you know, adaptability. And it shows because birds are very successful, uh, they are always on all continents, and they're most common big vertebrates you see when you go out, because you always see pigeons, sparrows, seagulls. Even now with modern organizations, most birds quickly adapt to, you know, modern buildings. Like hawks migrate to cities to hunt pigeons quite quickly. So you can imagine uh, urbanization being faster and more destructive process than actually KT extinction that killed dinosaurs. And most birds, not all of them, are coping quite fine. <laughs> They're not very, like, I'm not a big fan of ghosts ravaging into the burbobish or pigeons in the, you know, bus stops. But they you know, prevailing. Good for them. <laughs> Does the fact that birds can fly, but they evolved from dinosaurs, mean that pterosaur wings and bird wings evolved completely separately? Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Bird wings are just fusion of its main carpels, so all the three digits are sort of fused together to create one big wing. With pterosaurs, if you can imagine your pinky just growing very, very long and attaching a membrane to your body. Uh, so pterosaurs have elongated the third digit which uh, attaches the protagia or you know, a membrane to its body. So it's very, very different from a bird and different from bats, which have just ex- every single digit of them is extended as a membrane between them. All the flying methods are very, very different. They all involve modification of the front limb, but with tarsals, it's just a case of one very long finger. So the rest is all just skins and bits of membrane and things? Yes, yeah, yes, we have. It's very similar to things like flying squirrels when you think about it. A lot of membrane. That's why they're so sparse when you look at the pterosaur skeletons. They have very thin necks, very small bodies, and very small hind lips. So in real life, they possibly were just a lot of flabby skin. And we know they had very narrow wings, very small to seagulls currently, because of how they are preserved. So not really big, sparring dragon wings, more like thin lines. And were pterosaurs more of a flapping kind of animal, or did they glide more like a flying squirrel? It depends on which specimen you look at. For example, when you have something small like androgonephids, which are maybe 10 centimeters in total length, very small creatures. Yeah, yeah, that, that, they have, they're very, very weird. They have very big eyes, and very flat faces, and very curved ungulates or claws. Which, which, which makes us think they were insectivorous, uh, so it insects and lives around tree canopies. So they possibly were moving using past flapping, as currently do things like hummingbirds. But for the bigger pterosaurs, maybe more gliding style of uh, action, because they were quite big. Some, uh, some pterosaurs, like as darkids, had wingspans of 12 meters plus. They were sizes of small aeroplanes. Wow, so they're massively different in size then? Yeah, it, with pterosaurs you start from Cretaceous to uh, Jurassic pretty small, so sizes from a 1 to 1.5 meters. 
So around sizes of uh, gannets. So pretty big birds, and also you have very small uh, individuals that are no longer uh, no bigger than like 10, 20, 30 centimeters in total length and quite small wingspans. And then you go to Cretaceous, and suddenly you have boom in gigantism. And it's even suspected some thrusters are suspected to actually be feeding on small dinosaurs like sauropods, just because they are so big. The beaks were three meters long, and they stood at the same tallness as uh, regular giraffes. So yeah, they're pretty amazing big creatures. And so you can imagine just something big flying with stork-like beak that's pretty much bigger than you, like twice your size. Uh, size of a double-decker, just sort of prowling around and flying. It's, it's amazing. And you, in some areas, like you have the Hetza Islands, uh, it's suspected they were the apex predators, feeding of small dinosaurs just because they were so big and well adapted for actually eating small prey because they could open their jaws quite widely because they have a lot of mandible growths and they're quite muscular with very stout necks. So yeah, some of them were very big active land predators. I suspected they were um, lifting off by punching off ground using their forelimbs instead of like birds using hind limbs. Because just hind limbs or legs are very, very skinny. Uh, and they look just off. The most weight is sort of based around shoulder region, around its columns and big necks and beaks. So it's suspected they actually rose to start satisfying by pushing this themselves off the ground using the columns. So they would push up with their wings, then once you're in the air, start flapping. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we have some tentative fossil traces uh, of the tracks that might support this idea. But it's very tentative. They're, they're, they're animals, so it's very hard to actually look at behavior. I'm not a big fan of extrapolating behavior from just fossils because, you know, we don't really have all this soft tissue or anything. And then you have some individual stretches when you have ichnofossils or trace fossils, which tell us something about its gait and uh, wilding behavior, but that's about it. But yeah, it's definitely interesting. It's cool to speculate. Yeah, definitely. Um, going back to your own research work, what's the big question of your project right now? Uh, there's a big gap in evolution of trusses, like I said, uh, especially in Jurassic, when they were static exploding into all different clades. Before that, we had only small group, which didn't really have crests, had lots of teeth and long tails, called ramponicoids. And around Jurassic, that shifted, and the, uh, the area exploded into a lot of different, very morphologically dissimilar creatures. And we don't really know what caused that change or when that change has happened. So I'm hopefully trying to recover what happened, that weird explosion in diversity, and made one type of dorsals disappear to be taken over by different types of dorsals. There's some kind of big ecological environment. So you're looking for the missing ancestors that link those all together then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically you have one group that was super prevalent in Triassic and Jurassic, disappeared and replaced with something else entirely. And nobody knows why or how or when. So hopefully, because we don't have that much fossils, my fossil will hopefully fit that puzzle piece and will, it tell, it will tell us something. But I can't say more than that currently. Yeah, of course, not until you know the answer. But for anyone who is interested in learning more, are there any good resources that you would recommend for someone to have a look at who's interested? There's a lot of great publications by Mark Whitten, who's a from England, who also does a lot of amazing paleo art. He studies as darkets, so the big pterosaurs that I've mentioned previously. And Peter Wellenhofer also published a book in 1990s, which is very accessible and pretty fun. 
Wollenhofer was one of the biggest pantalonists from the 70s and 90s, who sort of brought Tarsals back into spotlight after hiatus after World War II uh, and Victorian area. So I definitely recommend those two books. Usually, uh, most of dinosaur books don't focus on Tarsals because Tarsals and dinosaurs are different creatures. You have no idea how they were related exactly to each other. Currently, the main uh, idea is that Tarsals are sister group dinosaurs, but as we don't have we don't have like proto-torso. So then the Pterosaurs appear fully adapted to flying and very down thing in late Triassic. And we have no idea how they came for that. We don't have like a proto-torso that might actually put the link between some other diapsid from past. So right now they're just some kind of flying reptile that's maybe Acrosaurian. And we cannot really say anything about it until we find more fossils going even early in time. Which might come in handy because something like Scotland has a lot of Triassic deposits which are still being discovered and might have some missing links showing us something about basic. Is Triassic before Jurassic? Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's going like Triassic, that's the period in which dinosaurs and pterosaurs appeared. And they usually appeared after middle to late Triassic. Uh, and then you have Jurassic, which is in the middle, and Cretaceous. Most people know most of dinosaurs from Cretaceous. So like Tarsus, Rex, Velociraptors, Triceratops, they were all from Cretaceous. So it's weird that they're all in Jurassic Park. Yes, I mean, Jurassic just sounds better than Cretaceous. Cretaceous and also. Although Jurassic has some interesting clothes, we have the Stegosaurus and Archaeopteryx, uh, but, uh, and all the long-necked sauropods, like Brachiosaurus and Diplodocus. I'm currently studying Jurassic just because England has a lot of Jurassic deposits, which are pretty good, well-preserved. We also have a little bits of Triassic and a little bits of Cretaceous, we're not, not as well preserved as other things. Actually, uh, quite recently, a new pterosaur was described from Cretaceous of Isle of Wight, which is a big tapajarid, which are very big, exciting pterosaurs, which had big crests and were suspectedly fruit-eating just because they had parrot-like beaks. It's very, very hard to tell, but they don't look that... They are not well adapted for carnivory just because they have very shallow beaks. But you can't really say anything about diet unless you find some good content that you can collate or some active signs of predation, like actually animal eating each other or something, which actually happens quite commonly. There's one very amazing fossil in which Tarsus is being eaten by a big fish jumping out of the water. It's absolutely amazing. It's just a snapshot of action. Yeah. Can you actually just see the skeleton inside the other? Yes, yeah, yeah. Just the big fish uh, snatching cramponine coids in snack. It's amazing. Uh, and also you have things like teeth or teeth traces lodged into uh, fishes and cephalopods which also can be correlated to predation of competition. But something like frugivory or eating fruits is hard unless you find some seeds as good content. And sometimes maybe new techniques can from chemical analysis of the bone can actually tell something about that as well. Yeah, it's amazing what you can tell from just a single bone. Yes, you can do a lot of things on single bone because you have a lot of ana anatomical things that you can easily read. You have uh, traces of musculature attachment and traces of skin attachment. So we can actually extrapolate quite well from just looking at the bone. Now chemistry and analytical techniques come over, which help us to actually look even further across soft tissue preservation and behavioral traces. But also it's usually just resonated to one specimen or one location. And that's not very statistically friendly. But cell using like cells usually just have specimen or species described from just single bone or just single specimen. And that's not very helpful because you can't say anything about gender, about growth. Yeah. 
Um, you said earlier that there was only one female specimen of a particular pterosaur. Mm-hmm. Are there any definitely confirmed male specimens? I mean, you can't really say if something's male or female up until you have find something that instantly recognizes things like giving birth to live young or just laying egg or something like that. So there's more evidence to identify a female than a male, really? In a way, yes, yeah. They're, they're like with uh, some like Tyrannosaurus rex, some people speculate hip wideness and distribution of caudal, caudal or tail ribs might tell us something if the body's well prepared to egg lying. That's, of course, speculative. And sometimes you have things like when you have preservation of birds, you have this one bird called Confucianus from Dual Biota in China, in which have some specimens which don't have like very ornamental feathers and some that do. So we assume the ones with very colorful feathers coming from the tails were males and the simpler ones were females, like they're currently in modern birds. Yeah, it seems like there's loads of specimens that I've found in Geobiota in China. Are there places like that all over the world or in the UK where there's just things waiting to be found? I mean, we have the Chermov and Jurassic Coast, which is great and transitions into the world, and Isle of Wight, which is Cretaceous Chalk. And all of them are very fossil first. They have older fossils, but they usually are either disarticulated or not in the best preservation conditions. But the, despite that, a lot of marine creatures are preserved very, very well, like Ichthyosauruses. And in a, there's one famous pterosaur from UK called Dimorphodon which is this small one with very big fenestra, big holes, with very doming head, which was one of the first pterosaurs to be described. Uh, and it was discovered in 19th century by a paleontologist called Marianning. She was living in Lyme Ridges. She's one of the first female scientists on the record. Sadly, she was not a member of any royal societies, and her contributions were not really assigned to her because she was a working-class woman, which she discovered and na- uh, helped naming and describing most of prehistoric creatures and reptiles we know from British Isles, especially like things like Plesiosaur, Ichthyosaur, and Dimorphodon. So a very interesting lady, she used to go uh, looking at the cliff faces with her Jack Russell Terrier, which is a very cute image. Sadly, that Jack Russell Terrier died when the cliff collapsed when she was falling, so it's not a nice story. Yeah, a bit of a sad ending to that. But now there's entire font in her name, just because previous, uh, previous to modern age, she didn't have that many female plantologists. And she was definitely one of the best fossil preparators and fossil spotters and anatomists of And you have entire gallery of her fossil findings in National History Museum London, which you can come and see because those specimens are really amazing, showing meters long dolphin like reptiles, which are amazing. And I had the pleasure of looking at uh, her excavated specimens, dimorphodons, and whole types at National History Museum, and they're absolutely lovely fossils. Being a working class woman of the time, did she get to travel to more areas looking for fossils or was it? It was just in Dorset and Lyme Regis, which is very fossil for us. And we still are finding specimens over there from dinosaurs, but not many dinosaurs because it was a deep sea. So when you find dinosaurs, it usually was an animal that died, bloated and was carried over to the sea. But mainly it's marine creatures and like some pterosaurs, like Dimorphodon, because they were flying, so they, you know, land on water wasn't really a barrier for them. And then you have some other fossil places in York, which are also Jurassic and yield similar animals to the ones from Dorset. And uh, areas in Oxford, which yield uh, things like Megalosaurus and other Jurassic theropods and sauropods and animals like that, which are pretty well complete and are quite easily accessible to uh, see in Oxford Natural History Museum. 
Scotland is also slowly becoming more fossil aware with all of research going on Sky, coming from my supervisor, Steve Brissetti, who's looking at sauropod dish, uh, tracks. So the big long-length dinosaurs left a lot of tracks in lagoonal and tidal deposits of Scotland in areas around Staffin on Sky, which I recommend seeing, but they're very hard to spot because it's a very tidal region, so you can't really spot them that easily, and they just big dish-shaped impressions. General region around Staffin on Sky is very ichnofossil or fossil trace friendly. We don't have any fossil fossil evidence there yet. A lot of theropods, a lot of sauropods, triceratopsid. No, sorry, not triceratopsid, stegosaurus. <laughs> That's a very different time period. Coming from that location, previously it was just individual teeth or wrinkled TV or something like that up until my specimen, so that's very exciting. And it shows that there are interesting things to come out of the sky Jurassic deposits. Suddenly it's all limestone and it's very hard to work with limestone. It's very hard. It's also usually tidal uh, and associated with cliffs, so it's not very easy to access it. They have to be cut out. Limestone is concrete hard. It's, it's not a friendly material to work with. But yeah, <laughs> so luckily I uh, didn't have to prepare mine, but others have so many amazing things and findings that have to be prepared manually and it takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of care to actually take them out. Do you think the deposits that are harder to access will have the more interesting specimens in, since we've maybe found most of the easy to find ones? It depends if you are lucky. Most of the fossils are not found by paleontologists, just by lucky quarrymen, that sort of quarry in area for things like shale or limestone. Uh, or marble, and they come across fossils and are reported to the uh, museum or pantologists. That's how most fossils are found, by just local friendly farmers. Just because there's a lot of rock and not a, not a lot of it is easily accessible. Locally, fossils tend to preserve in rocks that are so, of some economic value, like limestone. And sometimes we, when you on, are on airports or something, you can actually find fossils lodged in some of the limestone slabs, uh, which is very interesting. I had seen a lot of ammonites and belonites just lodged in polished sections of slabs that are in. Sometimes you even find uh, examples of somebody finding a fossil on the countertop. <laughs> so yeah, most of them are just accidental commercial findings. This is going to be my final question. Why isn't there a pterodactyl anymore? Why are they all called pterosaurs? Uh, okay, so a pterodactyl... The first pterosaur was, uh, was found in 1784 and described by... Italian nationalist called Cosimo Alessandro Colini. He was actually a secretary for Voltari. So it was like a long time ago. It was around the time of Age of Enlightenment. Pterosaurs were actually known before dinosaurs by a good 60 years, but nobody knew about paleontology extinction back then. So Colini thought this animal was sort of a marine animal because it was preserved in salt and limestone with other fishes. So he assumed it was just some weird with flippers attached to the big membrane. And the fossil made its way to a guy called Georges Cuvier, who was an anatomist. He was the guy that proposed the idea of extinction and animals dying out, and was technically a father of paleontology because of that. And he thought that animal uh, was actually a flying animal, and the membrane attached to the finger was used for flying. And he called this animal pterodactyl, pterofinger dactyl, so a wing finger. That was the name that sort of stuck around, because later on when you had other specimens being found, people assumed it was pterodactyl and they named it. Now pterodactyl is a name associated to one specimen from southern limestone, and it's a was because it was it's an old term, all of old animals and fossils attributed to pterodactyl. Pterosaurs are named for all 
in Caucasian pterosaurs. Pterodactylia now is called a uh, name attributed to this one genus coming from Jurassic of Germany. Well, thanks for coming online to do this episode. And for anyone who's listening who wants to know more about paleontology, we'll have another speaker who focuses on fossilized crocodilomorphs in a few weeks' time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the SciFeed Guest Show. And if you want to hear more, subscribe to us using your podcast provider or check out our website, scifeed.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching for SciFeed Podcasts.